You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Getting visibility into what the criminal underground has stolen from an organization is really kind of the first step to post-infection remediation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. we got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, my conversation with C.W. Walker. He's Director of Security Product Strategy at SpyCloud. We're going to be talking about post-ransomware recovery. But first, a word from our sponsors at Know Before. We're not talking conspiracy theory when we say it's all connected. When it comes to InfoSec tools, effective integrations can make or break your security stack. Though not as common, the same should be true for security awareness training. Not only does Know Before deliver the world's largest library of security awareness training, but they also provide a way to integrate the various elements of your existing security stack to help you strengthen your organization's security culture. Stay with us, and in a few minutes, we'll hear from our sponsors at Know Before about how you can integrate security awareness with your tech stack like never before. All right, Joe, uh, before we get to our stories here, we have a couple of items of follow-up here. Yes, we do. Uh, why don't you do the first one, and I'll do the second one here, and we'll, we'll, we'll make our way. Dave, uh, I want to uh, put out a way to go, a kudos, if you will, to one of the big tech companies. Okay. Uh, and it's my least favorite big tech company, <laughs> okay. Facebook. Really? Yes. Huh. <laughs> All right. But I had a, uh, a, a relative who was a connection— on Facebook, and somebody cloned her account. Oh. And immediately sent me a friend request. So knowing <laughs> right. what was going on, I uh, I sent a message to the actual account of the person, and she to this day has still not responded. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know that she knows how to respond. This person is an older person. Okay. Uh, but I started getting messages from the fake account within – two days of accepting the friend request. Oh. And as soon as I, I received the message, I tried to reply, and Facebook said, oh, no, you can't reply to this. Hmm. They had already figured out this was a fake account. Uh, and shortly after, without any any action on my part, they, uh, they have shut the account down. Oh, good. So I'm impressed with how fast that happened. Yeah. That the, the scammer was able to send me messages and presumably start some scam but I was not able to reply to the scammer, and uh, now the account is gone. Good. So, yeah. well done, Facebook. Happy it, ending. Sure. It looks like they're getting better over there at that at resolving that problem of fake accounts. Right, right. All right. Well, uh, we got a couple of notes from listeners about some recent episodes. Um, the first one here is a note from Clayton, mm-hmm. and Clayton says, Dave and Joe, I think Joe made an unintentional insight in his commentary during this episode— at one point, you mentioned your daughter's professor referred to computers as fast idiots. Mm-hmm. I remember as, that. As you are both well aware, humans reacting emotionally could just as well be classified as fast <laughs> idiots. 
Yep. In, insulting language aside, humans in this state are just as likely to follow the instructions given to them as input, malicious or otherwise. That's 100% correct. Quite figuratively, the human is now hackable, as you both mentioned later in this episode, and most every other episode, the best defense is to slow down and return to a more human state. Uh, what do you make of this? I, I think Clayton's right on the ball here. I, th- I agree with you 100%. Uh, and I agree, his language the language is insulting. It's not that you're stupid because these things happen. Yeah. It's because you're literally doing the thinking with a different part of your brain that is uh, more equipped for faster decision-making. Right. Uh, and it's not equipped for higher-level cognitive functioning. Right, right. Uh, it's which, the run-away-from-a-tiger part of your brain. Exactly. It's <laughs> called the amygdala. It's very small and very efficient and very yeah. fast. Yeah. Uh, so it's, um, yeah, this this is absolutely spot-on, Clayton. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for writing in, Clayton. I think it's a it's good emphasis of a good point. Um, we had another uh, letter from a listener named Robert who wrote in, uh, and wrote, uh, says, I have some feedback on a discussion you guys had weathering, whether wallets are safer than smartphones. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the end of your discussion, based on what you said, you guys still called that your phone was more secure than your wallet as long as it's properly secure. Uh, Robert writes, on a technical level, I agree with that, but I also think your phone is quite a bit more risky than your wallet, and here's why. Your phone is not just a device you use for monetary transactions and accounts on it, but it doubles as your memory device for phone numbers, which is what its primary use is for anyway. Right. I would say it's what its primary use used to be. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point, Dave. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think these days they're portable computers that have uh, functionality to make phone calls, but I'm nitpicking. Uh, Robert goes on and says, very few people memorize important phone numbers or keep a black book or something nearby in order to communicate with those you might need like banks or financial institutions. 100% correct. Yeah. He says, uh, remember that the thieves are not just stealing your phone to access your financial and personal information, but they're also taking away your means of being able to communicate with important businesses and institutions in order to protect your financial assets in time. That's right. I Uh, think it's a good point. That is a good point. Uh, I will I will counter that point by saying um, if you if well I won't counter the point I'll, I'll agree with that that that's that Robert is one hundred percent correct yeah uh, I will say though if you are lucky enough to just have your phone stolen you still have access to your wallet all the numbers you need are in your wallet printed on the back of the credit cards mm. uh, if you have access to the physical credit card you still have access to the information you need yeah all you need now is a phone um, but no Robert makes a great point here's another question I'll ask you Dave do you know your wife's cell phone number. I know my wife's cell phone number, but I do not know my children's cell phone numbers. Right. Yeah. I don't know my children's <laughs> cell phone numbers either. I, I made a point of memorizing my wife's cell phone number. Yes. Uh, for exactly this reason. Yes. Uh, uh, fortunately, I guess I do know my daughter's cell phone number because hers is just my wife's plus one. That's <laughs> very convenient. It's Lisa plus plus. Yeah. Is, is Kayla. I so, used to know my parents, but then they got new they got new numbers, and so I don't know those either. Yeah. Uh, actually, I used to know my sons uh, as well, but he got a new phone number, and that wound up. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just never even made a point of remembering. Right. It. Well, then that's to, I mean that's to Robert's point here, right? Right. I think he's he's right on. Yeah, and I certainly don't remember my bank's phone number. No. I just don't know it. No, no, I, I, yeah, I think he's right. We, we've, we've offloaded memorizing phone numbers. We, we don't do that anymore, right? Because we don't need to. Yeah. And so, yeah. What are we doing with that part of our brain, though? Uh, look at cat videos. Okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Very constructive. Not, yeah. Not, not a lateral move. <laughs> you know, I still remember the phone number of the kid that used to live across the street from me. I can, I can, sure. I can tell you what it is right now. I remember my first phone number. I'm, oh, I still remember that too, but that was 
Uh, I can't I can't say it, but there were easy mathematical ways to remember it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, back then it was a lot easier too because we didn't have to remember area codes. That's correct. <laughs> That's and right. we could always put a, a mnemonic in front of it like Pennsylvania, right? Yeah, Pennsylvania That's right. 65,000. All right. Well, uh, thanks to uh, everybody for writing in with your uh, questions and comments. We do appreciate it. Uh, We're not always able to read all of them on the air, but please know that we do read all of them and uh, we do consider all of them. If there's something that you would like us to read on the show, uh, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right. Well, let's jump into our stories here. Joe, why don't you start things off for us? Speaking of ATM cards and things of that nature, yeah, Dave, uh, my story actually is a conglomeration of stories, but I'm going to start with this one. Hmm. This morning, as we're recording this, my son found out that he had $400 withdrawn from on his ATM card and the withdrawal he didn't make. Oh. Isn't that interesting? Yes. Now, here's what's also interesting. It was at an ATM close to our house. Okay. That, that we know about, that we use frequently. Okay. Uh, because it's gotten an affiliation with our bank and our bank is a little further away. Mm. Uh, so we just go to this ATM and that's where we withdraw our money. Now, he made a withdrawal there last week. Uh-huh. Uh, and then the money disappeared from his account uh, yesterday or this morning or something. That's, this morning is when we noticed it. Yesterday is when uh, when it happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, I asked him, does your card have a chip in it? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. And he said it does. Oh. So he called the bank. The bank said, okay, well, we're going to start uh, an investigation here, and we're going to find out what happened, uh, I guess. Uh, but uh, I looked this up, for the, uh, and according to the FTC website, that there are uh, limits to your liability for, his, uh, for, for these kind of things, for lost or stolen ATM cards. Hmm. Uh, and if you report the crime within two business days of noticing it, uh, you are, your, your liability is capped at $50. Oh, okay. If you report the loss or theft of a card before anything is stolen, your liability is zero. Nice. After two days, your liability jumps up to or 500 bucks. Oh, okay. Which is substantial. Yeah. Uh, so one of the key takeaways here is to, uh, make sure that you are watching your bank account for these kind of this, these kind of withdrawals. Right. right. Uh, we I don't know how this how this cloning worked though, because uh, we walked over to the to the location that this place is. Yeah. Actually, we drove over. We could have walked, but it, uh-huh. I mean it's really close. Uh, we drove over and I walked in and I pulled on the little cover of the uh, where the where the card goes in, and then I asked my son, "Was there anybody standing around you when?" When this happened, he goes, no. I said, does everything look the same? And he goes, I don't remember. Right. Maybe, maybe the cover was green. You know, yeah. the, the card slot cover was green. Why I, would you make note of right. any Why of that? Right, why would you make note of it? Right. Yeah, he doesn't know. I said, was anybody around? I did ask if anybody was around him. I think I've already said that, right? Yeah. But he said, no, there was nobody around except a security guard who was not close enough to see him enter his pin. Okay. So there are some other means of them garnering his pin from this. Hmm. So I did a search on similar stories uh, and I came across a, an interesting consumer banking scam. This is from ABC News 7 out in San Francisco. Uh, it's by Michael Finney and Renee Corey. Hmm. And this is a similar scam. Well, I don't know if this is similar or not, but what these guys are doing is, uh, and I noticed this feature on the ATM where my son was uh, had 
we think he had it, his card skimmed there, and we know that's where the transaction was conducted, the fraudulent transaction. So the money that was taken was at the same location that he had last used the card? Yes. Interesting. That is interesting, isn't yeah. it? I didn't make that clear, did I? Hmm. Did you notify the store? We did. We actually told the manager. We walked in there and discussed it with him. Okay. And he said, well, I'm going to turn this thing off right now. Uh, and have uh, the company come out and take a look at it, do an inspection of it. Oh, okay. So I wonder if there's security footage that uh, they could look at. There might be. Yeah, interesting. Uh, there, there is a camera on the device. Sure. But one of the other features on the device, on this, uh, on this machine, is it has the tap, uh, you know, the near-field communication tap. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this story depends on that feature being on the ATM. Do you Now, is that what your son did? No, he did not. Okay. He inserted this card because, and I asked him about this. He goes, I, I said, did you use the, the, the tap feature? He goes, no, I don't trust the tap feature. Oh, boy. I'm like, I don't trust it either. <laughs> you don't? Why not? Why don't you trust the tap feature? Uh, because it, what what information? It's are, tokenized. It, no, is a tokenized feature? Sure. Is it tokenized in the card tap? Uh, it's my understanding. Okay. Well, then, okay, maybe that's better. I'm sure our listeners will let us know. They will let us know. <laughs> I'm sure we have some PCI is, guys out there right now right, screaming at their radios. Right, exactly. Radios. Who is right, but more importantly, who is wrong? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so in this story out of San Francisco, yeah. what these guys are doing is they're walking up to an ATM that's equipped with one of these tap interfaces. Yeah. And they are filling the slot where you put your card with glue. <laughs> of course. Okay. So then you walk up as a uh, as a customer of the bank, and you put your card in there, and you can't get your card in there because it's fill, full with glue. Yeah. So somebody very helpful goes, "Oh, you have to use the tap interface, okay. right?" Yeah. And they say, "Let me help you out with this." Now, as most of our listeners probably already figured out, this is the bad guy, mm. right? So when you use the tap interface, uh, it begins the process of 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 doing whatever you do with an ATM and they're watching you enter your pin and then you walk away. But if you don't walk away from the, uh, if you don't close out the transaction, if you leave it open, like Mm -hmm. it'll ask you at these ATMs, do you want to conduct another transaction? Right. Right. These are chase ATMs. And I'm going to name the chase, name the company chase because they're named in this article here. Okay. Uh, so the customer then gets the money, the, the banking customer gets the money the, the screen still says, do you want to conduct another transaction? The customer walks away from the ATM, and then the guy says, yes, I want to conduct another transaction. And because he saw you enter the PIN, he enters the PIN. I see. And then withdraws money from your account. Uh-huh. Probably checks your account balance as well. <laughs> right. Uh, to see how much money he can withdraw. Yeah. Uh, now, there are a couple of bad things that Chase did in this case. Mm. Number one, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ding them on their user interface. <laughs> okay, fair right. enough. You shouldn't have something that says you want to conduct another transaction, um, or, or I, I don't know. Maybe you should, or maybe your timeout should be a lot, a lot shorter. Uh, I don't well, know. How I suppose that works. they they think that it's safe because it requires the entry of the pin a second time. Right. It, it does require the entry of a pin, and that's a good point. It, yeah. It might be safe. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it would be nice if it if it required the access of the card again. Right. Uh, to make sure that the person who's holding the card is still there. But then uh, now you're entering into a field where all I have to do now is render the person, just get the card from the person, which might cause physical harm. Right. Okay. And that's not uh, an objective any of us want to have. Yeah. Uh, so these people had these fraudulent transactions on their card. 
They called Chase. Chase denied all their claims, saying, you have to prove that this wasn't fraudulent. And when these people said, well, do you have access to the footage, the security footage, Chase said, you have to get a, uh, we, we can only look at that security footage with a with a uh, police, a subpoena from the police. What? So, right, exactly, which is wrong. That, I'm calling BS <laughs> that on is that. BS. Yeah, that. That is completely incorrect. Yeah. When, when you call your bank and you say a fraudulent transaction has occurred, yeah. you are entitled and your bank is obligated to conduct what they what is termed a, a reasonable investigation, okay. which includes looking at their own surveillance footage. Right. There's, they don't no, need, there's no HIPAA they don't restrictions need authorization on, from the yeah. law enforcement to <laughs> there, look at that. Yeah. There's no restrictions on a bank camera. Right. That's your property. That is the stupidest argument I've ever heard from a large corporation coming out about a fraud a fraud claim. Huh. Uh, it it uh, Frank, I'm I'm, I'm going to stick by that term. That's a stupid argument. Yeah. Uh, they really shouldn't have made that. Well, of course. When the media found out about this and started reporting on this, well, then Chase said, okay, well, we're going to look into how we're going to change our policies, make our customers more safe, and we are going to refund everybody's money. Good news. Good news. <laughs> right. It is a shame that this is a standard operating procedure for businesses, uh, that when something like this happens, that they don't address it like, okay, we have a security problem. Our customers are losing money. Right. Uh, we have to make them whole. Let's fall, solve the problem. They put all the onus initially on the customer, and that's what they want to do. But then, you know, that's what these companies do. So this is why I say when people ask me, who do I talk to about this? Media. Just go to the media. If yeah. you're not getting satisfaction, see if you can get somebody to uh, bring broader attention to it. Well, and I think it's a good reminder of why we need a, a robust and healthy media. Absolutely. And in particularly a local media, which has really been hit hard lately. Yeah. But you think about... For example, your local TV affiliates, most of them have some sort of consumer advocate. Yep. Who's the person whose job it is to try to— to, to on get, your cut, side, cut, Dave. Yeah, exactly, to cut <laughs> through the red tape when it comes right. to these sorts of things. To get right through and, and make things happen. Right, right. Wow. Uh, how, are thing, how do you think things are going to shake out for your son? Uh, that's an excellent question. I hope that they shake out well and he only is at a loss for 50 bucks. Okay. Uh, but, you know, it's 400 bucks. It's not a big amount yeah. uh, to lose, but it's still significant. That's all, yeah. It's, it's a significant amount for a, uh, for, you know, a, a, a young person to lose. Yeah. Uh, I, would, I would be upset losing four. I'd be very angry losing 400 bucks. Anybody would, yeah. I'd be like, let me see the picture. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I probably know this guy. I probably see this guy around town. <laughs> right. Where's my 400 bucks, you'll buddy? You'll be a stakeout. <laughs> right. You'll be hiding behind the ATM waiting for the next oh, well, person actually, to come by. Well, actually, pharmacy, so I'll be hiding behind the makeup counter. <laughs> okay, great. That's not at all suspicious. <laughs> right. <laughs> Who's that man <laughs> crouching behind the makeup counter? <laughs> <laughs> why does he have a crowbar? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is why Joe was no longer the host of right. <laughs> <laughs> Hacking Humans Podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, that is a uh, interesting story there. You'll have to keep us up to date on uh, what happens with uh, your son if he gets any justice here or yeah. not. Uh, also, we're going to put a link in the show notes to the FTC site that, that outlines your obligations or your uh, your rights, rather. Mm, good, good, and good. And the bank's obligations. Yeah. So, Joe, uh, for my story this week, I want to start off by taking a little uh, trip back in time. You will recall that we talked about stories where uh, they were alleging in business transactions that people were using deep face voices to uh, trick people in corporations, officers yes. in corporations, 
to get them to transfer large sums of money. You and I had this discussion probably years ago, and you were dubious of it. I was dubious of it, and I was, and I believe I was justified. Yep. And I had not. I and I did some digging and was unable to find any actual evidence that this is what had happened. Right. It was one of those things where I think it was something that some experts had speculated on being a possibility. And then somebody, that speculation turned into, in someone's story, this is what probably happened. Right. And then it became a game of telephone. Right. And the next thing you know, that's what happened. Journalism, they call it. <laughs> oh, I, like, I never heard that. I like that. Oh, you never heard that term? No, that's yeah. good. That's, that's when good. news agencies just start reporting the news of other news agencies. Yeah. 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 So we were skeptical of that and i called foul on it and i said you know i don't i don't believe this has ever happened but we both agreed that it was only a matter of time before it actually happened right and i think we talked much more recently like within the past 2 months that i think i even asked you do you still think this is not going to happen right well you joe said- Okay. It's happened. <laughs> so I should have made that a Joe Stradamus prediction. That's right. Uh, this is a story from um, Action News 5, which is uh, out of Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, and it's titled, A Family Targeted by AI Scam Using Loved One's Voice. So we talked about the increasing capabilities of these AI voice generators. Yes. And we've talked about, I, I refer to it as RoboDave, which is a version of <laughs> my own voice that I've loaded into one of these. And it spits out a remarkably uh, convincing version of I my own voice. I thought it was you yeah. the first time I heard it. <laughs> my own inflection, all that kind of stuff. Right. So it would seem that um, the scammers are on board with this yep. and are making use of it. In this particular case... Uh, there's a woman who received a phone call from her daughter, who she thought was her daughter, and it was her daughter's voice screaming hysterically, help me, help me, uh, Will's dead. Will is her husband. Help me, help me. Yikes. Um, and she was, of course, terrified. So they um, knew her husband's name. The, they knew this woman's son-in-law's name. Correct. Wow. Correct. So the phone call came in with her daughter's name on the caller ID. Okay. Oh, that's way more. Yeah. Th- right. Okay. So, so the call comes in with her daughter's name on the caller ID. She answers the call. She's greeted with a screaming voice of her daughter, what convinces her it's her daughter, help me, help me, my husband's dead. Help me. Um, now, the woman, the mom. Right was able to keep her wits about her enough that she hung up the phone and she called her daughter back. Right. And quickly established everything was fine. Okay. Good. Right? I'm, I'm very glad to hear that that's how it went. Yes. Did these guys call back again? They did not. Okay. They did not. Um, but the woman emphasizes, the mom emphasizes, she says, I probably would have done anything they asked for at that moment. And this speaks to uh, what our our listener wrote in about saying, right. you know, the whole thing about being uh, just having that part of your brain short circuited, shut down, right? Yeah, especially when it comes to your kids and your loved ones. Um, they spoke to uh, a, someone, a cybersecurity expert, Marcus Sachs. Uh, I'm not sure where that person is from. We've but, heard uh, that name before. I think we've. Have talked we? about him before. Okay. I think he's been quoted before as an expert on our All right. well, you know, this, articles we've talked about. Uh, they said that these AI scams are rapidly spreading across the country. Uh, he says the criminals choose a victim and gather information like audio of a loved one's voice 
and public information about a tragic event. Then they craft an AI persona and they strike. Public information about a tragic event. So in this case, if you actually watch the uh, the TV news story version of this okay. story, um, the husband, Will, had been in a terrible car accident within the past year and had, been, had serious injuries. Oh, yikes. So this was actually additionally pressing those buttons. In other words, right. the mom was already kind of emotionally primed right. that this is a possibility. These are horrible people. Yeah. So she had those pathways already wired up in her brain and ready to go. Right. That a tragedy could happen to this loved one. Um, so fortunately, all's well that ends well with this gang. You know, yeah. they, the, the family, the mom did the right thing. And kudos to her for yep. having the peace of mind. That is amazing that she hung up the phone and called her daughter back. It is. It is. Uh, there's another little bit that I, I like here. Uh, they say that the family plans to develop a safe word. To right. be sure it is actually their loved one on the other end of the line. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. Although I'd use the term code word because safe word means something else. <laughs> <laughs> it, it might. Right? <laughs> Same sort of thing. Yeah, I but, mean. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, this is amazing that they're, I'm, well, actually, I guess I'm not amazed. I shouldn't be amazed, but I'm, I guess what I'm, what I'm kind of surprised by, not really surprised, but unhappy with is the, the speed at which this has moved. Yeah. You know, we're here we are. We're less than six months away from from these voice things coming out and chat GPT going uh, live on, you know, anybody can access it. Anybody has access to these kind of tools. And here we are at these are now becoming remarkably powerful scamming tools. Right. Um, I, I I don't know. I've already sent I we talked earlier um, about similar stories. That were uh, that were not this advanced. This is really advanced. These guys yeah. did their homework. These guys are using open source intelligence gathering, artificial intelligence, phone number spoofing, mm-hmm. and, and they're and they're creating something that would probably get at least half the people out there to react immediately and right. not think clearly through it. Right. I mean, these are going to be really effective. Yeah. Um, and I'm surprised at how fast that came that that came to fruition. Mm-hmm. I probably shouldn't be surprised, though. I mean, these guys are motivated by money. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, th- this also brings to the question: Should we have large swaths of our voice out there everywhere we go? <laughs> right? Some of us have that horse yeah, has left. That the horse barn. has left the barn. <laughs> uh, I will tell you this, Dave. I, I when we were talking earlier about the more simplistic versions of these scams, yeah, uh, I said I'm going to go in and reach out to my family and tell them I'm never going to ask them for money, and I did that. I I made a um, I, I I sent a text out to every member of my family referencing these capabilities and saying if you ever get a call from me that sounds like it's for me and I'm asking you to help me with something, hang up and call me back. Right. I think that's the right thing to do. Yeah. yeah. I think that's the right message to put out there. Right. Let me ask you this though. Let's say, let's just try to imagine your average person out there minding their own business, right? right. Someone who is not have their own podcast or whatever. How easy do you think it would be to find audio of anyone? Uh, that's a good question. Um, if they have a social media presence, I'll bet it's pretty easy. I think it might be. You know, if if they have a TikTok account, if they have a an Instagram account where they post videos of themselves, mm-hmm. um, it it's trivial. Uh, I I actually wanted to build a Robo Joe, 
Yeah. Um, and found out that uh, using Eleven Labs, you have to actually pay five bucks a month to build your own voice there. Hmm. Um, but that's a small price for scammers. But I don't want to pay it yet. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. I was able to do mine for free, but Were maybe you really? that was. Yeah, maybe it was. Maybe they changed their right. Yeah, policies. Said, this is, people, people are were, building these. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Huh. All right. Well, I I think uh, there's more of this to come. This is certainly going to get worse before it gets better. If oh, it gets yeah. better, so uh, I think it's one of those things that we all need to do our part and warn our loved ones about this. Right. Especially exactly if you, you have said. a podcast. Especially if you have a podcast. Well, it's the thing, though. I mean the. These part of what the deal is with these uh, simulation tools, these synthesis tools, is that they require very little sampling data yeah. to do what they do. Yeah, it's scary good. Scary it is. good. Yeah. All right. Well, that is my story this week. Again, we would love to hear from you. You can email us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe. It's time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from Michael, who writes, uh, went looking in my spam folder for a legitimate email today, and I spotted this. And man, this is a doozy. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. (laughs) So uh, this is an email. Uh, I am going to try to do my best to read through this. Uh, It starts out, the title says... Final notice, emergency government decision announces all your debt have been canceled. And it's from IRS Cash, whose uh, (laughs) email email address is not having anything to do with the IRS. (laughs) And the reply to is a different reply to than the source email. It also has nothing to do with the IRS. And the text of the message says, We've been trying to reach you many times. Please confirm receipt. Emergency government... Decision announces all your debt have been canceled, confirmed by IRS. Now, one of the things I like about this is after the word canceled, there's a little uh, graphic of a police siren. Right, yes. <laughs> like a, to the light part of a police car, like an old-timey police car. Yeah, single the old gumball machines. Right, yeah, the one that spins around, right? right? Yeah, okay. It you, says, and you know what you're thinking? Right. It says, programs before they expire today, confirm to claim you cash money from U.S. Federation. And it has name, eligibility status, pending confirmation that says, confirm now. Uh, and then there's an address, and, and it says, this, this email was sent to you by IRS dollar sign cash. <sighs> IRS dollar sign cash. Yeah, is the uh, that's the people that uh, that work at the IRS, Dave. I guess so. <laughs> I was thinking maybe it was a relative of uh, Gene Simmons from Kiss. You know, he uses a dollar sign instead of S's in his name. So <laughs> right. Gene if it's somebody of his, uh, yeah. I mean, this is, is this just one that's so bad that well, it's just a filter? Yeah. Mike Michael goes on to point out that he says, "I know these emails aren't designed to fool experts. In fact, they're designed." so that somebody with enough savvy won't respond and just end up being a dead end. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he's right. This yeah. is, um, <laughs> this. that's exactly what this is for. Yeah. Is somebody that is, uh, would believe this, this is the kind of person they want. Right, right. That's about as bad as they get. Yep. Yeah. All right. 
Well, again, we would love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like us to consider for Catch of the Day, you can email us, hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Back to the concept of integrations. Nobefore's Security Coach uses standard APIs to quickly and easily integrate with your existing security products from vendors like Microsoft, CrowdStrike, Cisco, and dozens of others. Security Coach analyzes alerts your security stack generates to identify events related to any risky security behavior from your users. With this information, you can set up real-time coaching campaigns to target risky users based on those events from your network, endpoint, identity, or web security vendors. These campaigns enable you to coach your users at the moment the risky behavior occurs, with contextual security tips delivered via Microsoft Teams, Slack, or email. With 35 integrations and counting, Security Coach delivers the insight you need to improve your organization's security culture. Learn more about Security Coach at knowbefore.com slash security coach. That's knowbefore.com slash security coach. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with C.W. Walker. He is Director of Security Product Strategy for SpyCloud. And we're talking about uh, ransomware and some of his experience when it comes to that sort of thing. Here's my conversation with C.W. Walker. I think ransomware is on everyone's mind, right? It's gotten to the point where it's even on the mind of the administration um, and some of the policies that uh, the administration is enacting. Um, but largely that's because it's become so effective uh, for criminals to line their pockets. Uh, monetization through ransomware is uh, really, really, really big right now. So the reason that we are focusing on this um, as an industry is not just because of the monetary impact, which is significant. Uh, there's lots and lots of reports from big and small folks in the industry about the impact there, but also the impact to lives, right? It may be something like uh, you and I experienced with um, our municipality being attacked by ransomware and not being able to pay, in my case, my water bills. But mm. ransomware also has a tremendous impact on lives when things like uh, hospitals uh, are attacked. Uh, and so beyond just the financial impact, um, the the human impact of these digital attacks bleeding into the physical space really kind of drives the, uh, the imperative and the urgency of solving ransomware. Well, when we talk about this notion of, of post-infection remediation, I mean, I think since the outset, folks have talked about protecting yourself from ransomware, and a big part of that has been to have a robust backup strategy. Um, but I'm guessing that this notion of remediation, it's more than that. Yeah, absolutely. And the way that uh, I conceptualize this for myself is I have a physician who tells me that he can certainly treat my ailments associated with a poor lifestyle, but 
preventive measure is a more effective uh, treatment, right? Mm. Um, and as we look at post-infection remediation, we're looking really at precursors to ransomware in the case of um, initial infection vectors like InfoStealers, for example, which may also come side-loaded with things like CS beacons for persistence. But looking at the entire scope of an infection beyond just a device and starting to include in a malware response plan the connected cloud services attached to that individual. So moving beyond a device-centric view to really a critical workforce or workload or application view beyond just what's sitting on our individual devices. Well, help me understand how, how something like that works from a practical point of view. I mean, is this, I think many organizations today are, are using multiple cloud installations to do the various things they need to do, or are we talking about uh, a conduit between those various clouds to, to keep an eye on things, or how exactly does it work? Yeah, excellent question. And you're right. Cloud-hosted applications really drive the vast majority of our critical workloads, right? From everything like uh, code repositories, which can be extremely sensitive, uh, largely cloud-hosted, to our AWS or Microsoft or Google cloud infrastructure. Or it could be something as simple as the way that you you and I are interacting in this conversation, right? And how we connect and save information that we can use in other places. Everything sort of has a a cloud-hosted application. Steeler malware is looking at any way that it can get access to interesting information that it can use to monetize. Now, the same folks that are trying to monetize credit card numbers from Steeler malware are also those folks that are being referred to as initial access brokers um, and interacting directly with ransomware operators as well. And they differentiate that largely by the cloud applications that they're stealing with the malware, but also the type of device that they believe that they have infected, where an individual device for uh, a personal user with no business applications Uh, They can certainly monetize those Netflix accounts and those bank accounts. But if they get access to a saved login to a VPN credential or to a single sign-on credential um, or cookies related to those uh, individual applications, those become way more interesting from uh, an enterprise compromise. And they will look then to try and monetize those by sharing or selling those to ransomware operators. What are your recommendations for folks who are looking to dial this in? You know, you, everybody has a limited budget, limited resources, whether that's time or money. How do you prioritize where you're going to spend that time and money? What are the best areas for your particular organization to build those walls, to install those locks, you know, to, to, to build that moat and fill it full of alligators. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say the absolute cheapest way of uh, doing this from an individual standpoint is free. Uh, because one thing we don't think about is as we save credentials in our browsers, um, browsers have this wonderfully convenient function of 
password and session synchronization, right? Uh, they synchronize our applications for us. So if I log in on my phone or my laptop or my desktop computer, my passwords will be wherever I need them. However, Steeler malware can take advantage of that as well, where if I log into a work computer with a personal profile, because maybe I need to check my email every once in a while um, at work, or I believe that I do, that Steeler malware is going to be able to take every saved password from both my personal and my work computers and sync them to wherever that infection has happened, thereby exfiltrating potentially some really sensitive stuff. So disabling browser synchronization from an individual level is uh, one of the first things that you can do. And enterprises should also consider policies inside of browsers that either allow them, um, if they can, to, to prevent that type of synchronization or training to tell employees they shouldn't synchronize passwords. From an enterprise standpoint, taking a look at sessions and cookies is extremely important. So being able to have visibility, even if a user's home machine is compromised, whether or not an enterprise credential was on that home machine and synced. And so being able to collect and, and see the types of uh, information that a bad guy has stolen, even if it's outside of the purview of a normal security team. I feel as though sometimes organizations kind of want to have their cake and eat it too, where they they don't want to spend the money and provide their users with a, you know a, a company iPhone or Android device or whatever because they're expensive. So they say, "Oh, this is great! You know, bring your own device and use that." Um, but then the flip side of that is the user says, well, I'm only giving you so much access to my personal device because it's my personal right. device. You know, uh -huh. so uh, how do you thread that needle of, of respecting a user's privacy, but also taking advantage of the many advantages there are of BYOD policies? Absolutely. Yeah. And this this is a big thing, right? Uh, and in fact, I would I would venture to say, and I don't have statistics on this, but I would guess that most organizations have employees that are using their personal cell phones, right? For both business mm -hmm. and, and personal functions. Um, and although most organizations are generally pretty good about providing a laptop, uh, depending on the industry, maybe it is you get to choose your own laptop. Uh, and then it feels a little bit more like yours, even if it's not necessarily right. And so really the challenge for organizations is that visibility, whether something is inside of my castle walls or not, do I understand what kind of exposures um, have happened from a stealer type malware infection? Or do I understand the mechanisms, right, that the, the malware is employing to get around um, the things that I do have really secure? Now, I will say that um, anecdotally, as I've looked at uh, some of our own research and work with clients in this space, organizations have gotten pretty good at catching and preventing stealer malware infections. Um, it's not perfect, uh, certainly, but we've all gotten better at it. Where we see the largest impact to organizations are unmanaged devices or undermanaged devices like you're talking about with a bring your own device uh, functionality because security teams are sort of like, is this something that we should worry about? Or maybe we do worry about it, but is this something that 
really falls into our purview because it's a personal device. And one example that we saw was an organization that actually was relatively sophisticated on protecting their own devices, but an employee was on vacation and had to fight a fire that popped up at work and logged in not even to his own device, but a family member's device and had passwords sync to this family member's device, which was subsequently infected with malware. That is, I think, by everyone's definition, way outside of the purview of the security team, not even in the employee's uh, laptop, but an employee's family member's laptop. But understanding the types of information that are stolen by these malwares, credentials, certainly cookies, files, uh, a screenshot, information on the system itself so that they can try and virtualize it with uh, a relatively accurate fingerprint or use residential proxies to make it look exactly like the victim's machine, getting visibility into what uh, the criminal underground has stolen from an organization is really kind of the first step to post-infection remediation. Yeah, I mean, that, that example that you, that you uh, described there, uh, I mean, it really does emphasize the need for defense in depth, I suppose. That, I mean, you, there's so many things that you could try to look for along the way, you know, behavioral stuff. Where, where is this person? They're logging in from somewhere they've never been before, on a device we've never seen before. You know, there's all these little, little red flags that could go off along the way. But again, uh, I, I, I guess I, I wonder how you, how do organizations not get caught up in a vortex of complexity when there are so many things to that, that could go wrong so many ways you, you can't, there's that old saying, nothing oh, yeah. is foolproof to a talented fool, you know? And, and so <laughs> like your example, how do you, yeah. who would, who could predict that? And yet there it is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this really comes down to, uh, you know, like the, uh, the security in depth, uh, model that you're talking about, but really going beyond a, uh, a framework of just the device, you know, as we go through a malware response process or an incident response process, um, it has to be more than just, okay, we have a laptop that was infected. That is a laptop that is a company laptop and that we own. And we do our forensic analysis and we go through our communications channels. Um, we re-image that device. Or if you're one organization that I talked to, you literally light the device on fire. I'd love to be on that team. But <laughs> it gives us a false sense of security, right? When so much is beyond the edge of the device. So understanding the potential risks when there is an infection that we know about going beyond just re-imaging the device, but also applying a post-infection remediation framework that is an augmentation to a malware or incident response framework that says, beyond the device, we also need to look at all of the applications that user had access to. If it's sort of a sales-focused thing, Salesforce and a marketing platform, or if it's a developer, maybe it's a ticketing system and access to our code repository, resetting the passwords and invalidating any live sessions to those users. And then also going through the process of validating the data in the applications, the cloud applications um, to which that user had access to validate that when they were infected, 
nothing was stolen or compromised, and if so, to go through that full remediation process, even in those applications that are beyond the edge of the device. Joe, what do you think? Uh, very interesting. Monetization via ransomware is still a big uh, part of the criminal enterprise business model. Yeah. Uh, we've had a couple of stories that said ransomware is on the decline, but last year's data breach investigation report from Verizon showed a 13% increase in incidents. Hmm. So uh, I think ransomware is still a big problem. It's not the biggest problem out there. Uh, business email compromise is going to have much bigger losses per event. Uh, in terms of in terms of monetary losses, uh, but ransomware usually almost always is also a data breach event as well. Mm-hmm. So there's significant losses uh, or significant events rather yeah. uh, that can actually have significant financial losses. Uh, it's not going away anytime soon because it is a great way to monetize your uh, unethical behavior. I guess <laughs> <laughs> that's a great way to get money out of people. Yeah. Um, the human impact is something that really concerns me. Uh, getting ransomware into some critical utilities operational technology could be devastating. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what, what's the three three three? You can go uh, you can go three minutes without air, three days without water, and three weeks without food. Yeah. Uh, you know if you if you shut the water down in in an area, you're going to cause a lot of havoc. Right. Right. That's going right. That's going to be a very large problem to deal with. Uh, an even bigger problem to deal with that we've already kind of seen is uh, the medical incidents. You know, mm-hmm. we've, we've seen ransomware events that have impacted medical facilities where people have had to be, had to been rerouted. And there was a case in Germany where somebody died on the way to being rerouted. That's right. Um, so these have real world impacts and these are the things that concern me the most. Mm. Speaking of healthcare, I kind of like CW's analogy uh, about personal health with prevention of ransomware being worth a pound of cure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more you can do to stop that from happening, uh, the better off you'll be and because you won't have to experience it. Yeah. Right? It's just a better, a better way to, to, to go about your business, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, code repositories coming in, coming under attack from ransomware. Do you remember the code spaces attack back in 2014? I don't think so. I remember this because it wasn't actually uh, ransomware. It was a, a ransom attack. But these guys got into code spaces, the AWS front page, the portal. You know, okay. they, they got into the, uh, the console. That's the word I'm looking for. Okay. Uh, they got into the console and they said, if you don't start giving us money, we're going to just start deleting things. And then the guys from Code Spaces decided they were going to try to back things up, and the, the bad guys saw that happening and just started deleting everything they could. Hmm. Uh, and they wound up putting that company out of business. Wow. Um, I had a small business uh, at the time uh, with some friends of mine where we had some code in there, uh, and we got an email that said, yeah, Code Spaces is gone. Wow. We're just shutting down. Wow. Now, fortunately, hmm. we still had the code on our local machines. Right. Uh, but our code repository was destroyed. Wow. So it was just gone. I also thought the BYOD discussion was really interesting, this bring-your-own-device. And the particular hack that gets discussed in this, where somebody is logging in, not from their machine, not even from their personal machine, but from a family member's personal machine Mm -hmm. that later then gets compromised after they've they've put their credentials on the machine. Hmm. And some info stealer comes in and takes that that stuff away. Um, It's... 
I don't know how you protect against that aside from using multi-factor authentication. Right. I mean, that's really the only the only solution there, a hardware-based multi-factor authentication mm-hmm. token. Uh, mm-hmm. Or maybe certificate-based authentication would work as well. Hmm. Um, but actually, that might not work because the certificates may have, or the, uh, you know, the, the private keys may have been on that computer as well. Hmm. I, think, I think the hardware token might be the only way to do it. Hmm. And your point in this discussion is really good, that humans are fantastic at doing unexpected things. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody right? who's, had, who's had kids. Right. <laughs> you can do all the planning in the world for all the cases you think are going to happen. Right. And a new case is going to come up. Yeah. A, a new use case, a new security case, something is going to happen. It's just the way humans are. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, I don't know. I want to say we're terrible this way, but it's actually probably one of our strengths. Nothing it, is foolproof to a talented fool. Right. Well, humans are resourceful, <laughs> resourceful creatures. We're right. going to find a way to get, get, get around something. Right. And uh, we're going to find a way to get done what we need to get done. And that's, that's what you're looking at here. Yeah. So uh, CW has a couple of good, good tips here. Disable browser syncing. Uh, particularly for passwords. Uh, I don't use the password manager that comes in any of the browsers. Uh, I, I, I just don't trust them. And exactly for the reason that uh, that gets talked about a lot in this interview, if there's an information stealer on your computer and it gets access to those uh, those managers, if it can get around the encryption that's in place, or if it, it can wait till you unlock it and, and decrypt it, then it's going to take the information. Uh, that doesn't mean that other password managers are more secure. That's also a, a risk factor with other password managers. Uh, but it's it's you don't automatically sync it across all the locations, right? Right. Uh, so it's it's a different problem. Uh, manage your tokens and your cookies. That is for an enterprise. That's really important. This is where we're going to start seeing more and more of these attacks getting manifested. Is in this space where people are losing their tokens or their cookies to malicious actors because those are the pieces of the session that are awarded or provided to the user after they've been through the authentication process. They are demonstrations of existing authentication. So if if I can circumvent the authentication process by demonstrating that I'm already uh, authenticated with these tokens or these cookies, that's what I'm going to do. Now, that is a lot harder to do than just a simple social engineering attack where I try to harvest credentials from somebody. Mm. Uh, this does actually involve real skill to, to, to do it, but eventually there are going to be tools out there, commodity tools that help bad actors do these things. Right. All right. Well, again, we'd like to thank uh, C.W. Walker for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. We want to thank all of you for listening, and of course, we want to thank our sponsors at Nobefore. They are experts at enabling a fully integrated approach to security awareness training. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Our thanks to Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at harborlabs.com and isi.jhu.edu. We'd love to know what you think about this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. 
We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like Hacking Humans are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. The show is edited by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 